word. I'm going to say the word. In the beginning was the word. What? Word. 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 Was the word. From the studios of KJZZ in Tempe, Arizona, welcome to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in the state and the region. Here's your host, Tom Maxidon. Coming up on this edition of Word, all the world's a stage. So what are theater directors doing to include more diversity on it? We'll talk about that with the winner of the National Latinx Playwriting Award. Theater needs to really be forward-thinking. The medium will be looking to a younger generation that is sort of pushing boundaries. Plus, we'll find out what is a choreo poem, a term first coined in 1975 by Narasake Shange. It's more like a lot of different poems that are put together, and then there's music that's infused with it, there's dancing that's infused with it. But first, my colleague Jimmy Jenkins, who covers a wide range of criminal justice issues in Arizona for KJZZ, leads off our show with a dive into publications banned by the Arizona Department of Corrections. There are more than 7,000 of them, and as Jimmy reports... The metric for evaluating what books and CDs are allowed in state prisons has been ruled unconstitutional. Jane Mallory has a broad taste in music. She likes everything from Beyonce to... Michael Bublé. Greatest hits. A big fan, yeah. It was relaxing. We're looking through the CDs she listened to while she was incarcerated. She says Bublé's crooning had a calming effect on her and the other women living at the Perryville prison. Pretty, pretty tame stuff, right? Extremely. Very, you know, jazzy kind of stuff. Which is why she was surprised when it was labeled by the Department of Corrections as contraband. She had to appeal to prison officials who relented after removing a suspicious hologram on the packaging. The same thing happened with a science fiction book series about a private investigator in space. They got contrabanded for um, explicit stuff, language, sexual stuff, la la, all this kind of stuff. After another appeal, the books were allowed, but she says it illustrates the haphazard nature of censorship in the prisons. A spreadsheet released to KJZZ from the Arizona Department of Corrections lists more than 7,000 publications, books, magazines, and CDs that are banned in state prisons. They range from ancient texts like Sun Tzu's The Art of War to lighter publications like Dog Fancy. ADC says materials that enter the prisons are screened by employees in the mailroom and a publication review committee made up of two officials following guidelines established by the director. However, those guidelines have recently come under fire in federal court. Whether they're reading trashy romance novels or, you know, Tolstoy and Shakespeare, doesn't really matter. Paul Wright is the publisher of Prison Legal News, a monthly publication that curates criminal justice news as well as jail and prison litigation. It recently won a federal court case against the Department of Corrections in which the judge ruled ADC's policy against sexually explicit material overbroad and unconstitutional. Ironically, the material in question was a court ruling describing a sexual assault by prison staff against an inmate. I think this is part of the hostility that we see on the part of government officials where, you know, they're willing to do literally almost anything they can to prevent prisoners from learning what can be done about vindicating their rights. Andy Chan is the vice president of Books to Prisoners, a Seattle-based nonprofit that sends books to incarcerated people all over the country. He says they get about 14,000 requests each year. Dictionaries are the most sought-after book, followed by educational materials and escapist novels. So the genres like um, sci-fi and fantasy are really high uh, on our list of requests. 
He says he's witnessed a new wave of restrictions at state prisons in the past few years that prohibit third parties like books to prisoners from sending materials. With a few exceptions for security purposes, Chan argues access to reading materials for incarcerated people should be unfettered. Almost anything should be allowed because almost anything can provide education uh, and mental stimulation. Jane Mallory says it took her a while to adjust after two years in prison. I mean, your brain is really limited use because you are not making choices for yourself. She says having ADC tell her what she could and couldn't read and listen to damaged her self-confidence. At some point, if you don't have a trust factor going and have a little bit of respect, you know, it just keeps you down. She says giving inmates greater access to reading materials and more control over what they consume while they're incarcerated will help them write their own story of a successful re-entry. Jimmy Jenkins, KJZZ News, Phoenix. Thanks to Jimmy for that feature reporting. You can find more of his work by visiting kjzz.org. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word. Bring the radio home with you and never miss a minute of your favorite programs. This is Marketplace. I'm Kai Rizdal. I'm Robin Young. I'm Jeremy Hobson. It's here and now. Use all the features on your smart speaker to get the latest news updates and the best shows on public radio. It's easy. Just ask your smart speaker to play KJZZ. Thanks to David from Paradise Valley for donating his 2009 Land Rover to support his favorite shows. You can donate your vehicle, too. For more information, visit cars.kjzz.org. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Theater companies around the country, including Arizona Theater Company, are increasing efforts to produce more diverse plays in an attempt to serve a broader audience. As part of that focus... The company has named the latest winner of its National Latinx Playwriting Award. Benjamin Benet is being honored for his play, Alma. It's about a single working mother raising her daughter and the difficulties she encounters. Recently, my colleague, Steve Goldstein, co-host of KJZZ's The Show, sat down with Benjamin via Skype for a discussion. Steve began by asking Benjamin to describe the play and his own style of writing. I think the voice is always shifting a little bit over time, but I would say that like the the threads that connect all of my work are um, an interest in very intimate relationships um, between people. A lot of my plays tend to be very small in terms of the cast size. So this play, Alma, um, only has two characters, and I would say that's pretty typical of my work. A lot of the scenes that I tend to write are between two individuals because I think that allows the characters to really speak candidly, um, and we get a very intimate reflection of their relationship. I'm also really interested in expressionism and allowing sort of the interior, internal um, landscape of a character to be manifested in some physical or exterior way so that the audience can get a, a sense visually, sensually for what is the character feeling and what would the feeling, if we could take it out of their body, look like on stage. There's um, a moment in the play Alma where the title character becomes um, so overwhelmed emotionally that she screams. And in that moment of her screaming, the uh, electricity in the apartment surges mm. and results in a blackout. And I found that that is a thread through my work, that a lot of times I have imbued my characters with the power to shift 
the landscape and environment around them in some tangible way, but that um, also expresses something deeply personal and um, uh, an emotional content that that character is holding. So where did that become comfortable for you, or is that still a work in progress as well in terms of wanting things that would touch people and grab people in such a way? Certainly that's one of the things about live theater that so many people love, but unlike the electricity in the apartment, what courses through you when you feel like you've hit on something that really will strike an emotional chord with people? Well, I think all of my work comes from a thread of the personal for myself. Um, I usually won't write a story unless I have a way into it personally in some capacity. Um, so I think, and I, that feels really important to me because I think unless the story means something that is deeply resonant for myself, um, I, I won't ask that of an audience. So Ben, theater um, generally as as many uh, aspects of art, whether it's galleries, museums, uh, whatever it may be, are working hard and struggling, some would say, to get more mm. people of a certain generation to be a, be passionate about it, but be passionate also in a way that uh, that sort of combines maybe the traditional with new ideas. As a young person, where do you see, uh, just in a, in a larger general sense, uh, the world of theater where it comes to maintaining some traditions, and I don't even mean well-known plays, I mean even just the way they're they're put about. How do you blend that with trying to get newer generations passionate about it and also recognizing diversity and current issues that are going on right now? I think it is a great challenge for theater. I think one of the challenges that theater as a, as a, a medium moves really slowly in terms of its development. Um, so for example, a play like Alma, I've been working on since um, 2016. And here we are a number of years later, and it's just beginning to break um, break into sort of the national consciousness. Um, the play still has not had an official world premiere. So, um, and I think that's pretty typical in terms of the timeline for plays. Many of them, I think, go through um, from uh, from an initial draft through a three-year development period before they even see a production. And our world is shifting so rapidly, especially in the current political landscape, um, that I think sort of relevant stories that feel really timely can become really outdated, um, even over the course of a three-year working period. I think that means that theater needs to really be forward-thinking the medium will be looking to a younger generation that is sort of pushing boundaries, looking for stories that haven't been um, a part of the canon traditionally. Benjamin Benet is Arizona Theater Company's 2019 National Latinx Playwriting winner for his latest called Alma. Ben, very nice to talk with you. Thanks for the conversation. Thank you so much. The show airs weekdays on KJZZ 91.5 FM from 9 to 11 a.m. You can hear Steve's entire interview with Benjamin by visiting the show.kjzz.org. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word. Your mornings can define the rest of your entire day. Find the $5 you forgot about in your pocket, that might be a good day. Get stuck in a traffic mess on the 51, probably going to be a bad one. But when you begin your day with Morning Edition, you start fully awake with the latest and most important news to prepare you for whatever comes next. Take control of your day and listen to Morning Edition from 5 until 9 on KJZZ 91.5. Maybe you've lived in the Valley for years, or maybe you just got here. If you're curious about Arizona and have questions, KJZZ wants to know about them. 
send us a question at qaz.kjzz.org, and if yours is selected, KJZZ reporters will investigate. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. In 1975, legendary playwright poet Narasake Shange coined the term choreopoem. It's a form of dramatic expression that combines poetry, dance, music, and song. The first example of this form is entitled For Colored Girls Who Have Considered Suicide When the Rainbow is Enough. And according to Playbill, tells the stories of seven women of color using poetry, song, and movement. With unflinching honesty and emotion, each woman voices her survival story of having to exist in a world shaped by sexism and racism. Locally, activist, performer, and director Chanel Bragg and producer Leah Marche have teamed up to bring the production back to the Valley October 24th through the 26th. I had the chance to talk to Chanel at the KJZZ Studios in Tempe, and I began our conversation by asking why she wanted to reintroduce it as director after previously acting in the show back in 2008. Being a black woman, it definitely encapsulates a lot of my experience. And even if it doesn't, some of the poems I don't exactly identify with, I most certainly know someone that did or does. Or now that I've reached my, you know, you're not supposed to say your age. And <laughs> a woman doesn't reveal her age. Um, but my nearing my 40s, I'll say that. Um, it's, it's really great how much I really do identify with a lot of these ladies. Is there an analog that maybe you could give audiences uh, an idea? Because I think most people understand straight dramatic presentation. Obviously, they understand musicals, not like, although we're walking down the street, we break out in the song. (laughs) It's kind of traditional forms. Uh, I'm a poet myself, so, you know, this is close to my own heart. But sort of like, what is the structure? Is there even a synopsis that you could give us about this production? I'm so glad you asked that. Um, There isn't one. It's poetry, which I really love. There's nothing else like it. Um, being a professional actress myself, and I've done a lot of different work, it's considered a choreo poem. So it's more like a lot of different poems that are put together. And then there's music that's infused with it. There's dancing that's infused with it. So although those are elements of musical theater, this is not a musical theater piece. In fact, the poems are, if you look at how they scan in text, they are written in poetic format, but they can be delivered like monologues. So that's one of the cool things about this piece is that there are times, especially as a director, where I'm telling the actresses, okay, I want you to really lean into how to present this poem in a more poetic fashion, because the text lends for that. But then there's these other poems that are like five pages long, that's a very dialogue driven, as well as illustration driven and so you're creating these beautiful elaborate pictures that's the poetry but it's a hard-hitting monologue about like you know an abusive husband or you know some of these themes that are really important for us to discuss so how old is this production how long has it been around and has it been performed by others around the country it has been around since the 70s uh tyler perry brought it to cinematic life in 2010 with his own version of For Colored Girls. So the text has been around for a while. I have not seen that. Um, I would imagine, you know, with any stage production, there's differences, obviously, than in film. What were the challenges for you in staging this? 
So this style, just give some um, background, it's going to be more reader's theater style. What that means is that the ladies will be holding their books. That does not mean that they will not be memorized. They will be 90 to 95% memorized. Uh, the book is a part of the style in which the books also become props as well as helping them uh, tell the story. So they're interpreting the text. I also thought that was important because it is poetry. And how many open mics right. do you go to when people are holding their books? Sure. And they're interpreting. That's important to me. So I wanted to add that element. Also, we're getting it up in a very short amount of time. Uh, right. So I just want to make sure that no one feels burdened by that amount of text. I want them to feel comfortable because I would rather the subject matter hit the way that it needs to. And I don't want someone being worried about lines to be able to you know, communicate uh, the beautiful poems that Natsuki shared. But in terms of staging, it's really cool. So Reader's Theater is not your standard theater style. Really will be a troupe of actresses that are going to be molding and forming and creating different pictures. At one point will be the car. At one point will be the uh, surgery table. At one point, like so we'll physicalize a lot of the things of the setting. So there won't be like set pieces. It will literally be the women creating these pictures and sitting on stools. It'll be very minimalist, but it will be beautiful and impactful nonetheless. Well, minimalist from a setting standpoint, but nowhere near minimalism in terms of the heavy topics that oh, it content. takes. Oh, <laughs> You know, content-wise, right? Yeah. And you mentioned this, this choreal poem mm-hmm. was written in the 70s. A lot of time has passed, but in many ways, a lot of things have not changed. Yes, and I'm glad that you mentioned that. There's so many lines in the show that hit me so hard that are more than relevant today. Um, These women go through a lot of different things, especially um, in dealing with society, especially with dealing with heartbreak and shame. Uh, There's a lot in it, and so some of the language in it lends to that. And you can literally see the parallels of that today. And as I'm directing, so I'm a very, like, I'm an extrovert, if you can't tell. (laughs) And so I'm definitely big on sharing personal experiences, not to inform how I want the actress to portray the character, because I don't think that's fair. I think they, they deserve to use their own life experiences and whatever they feel the need to connect to a character to bring to the table. But I do add like, so let me tell you about this character and this is how I see her. And then I'll give like an actual life example. When I was in my 20s, I was going through such and such and such and with this boyfriend or whatever, like I'm sharing actual life experience with these girls. And I'm like, and that's why I view this as this. And it doesn't tell them how to play it, but it definitely informs like, oh, that's what this poem means. Or, wow, I have a similar situation like that, so I can draw upon that experience. As far as, you know, some of the themes that may still be prevalent today, did you have to update the language from writing from the 70s, or has that been progressively <laughs> updated? Natasake Shange is the beautiful poet that wrote this and put this all together. And the ladies, just to talk about the characters for a moment, they're uh, different lady colors. And the whole point is that they make up the rainbow, right? And so there's Lady Orange, Lady Blue, Lady Red, Lady Brown. So they're all primary colors. Um, And there's seven uh, essential characters. However, I had so many brilliantly talented ladies show up. I actually expanded the cast to 11. And I could have kept casting, but I said, get a rain. You've already added four extra bodies. (laughs) Um, But it's really exciting because I was able then to take the text and then really evenly just 
distribute some of the poems. So this is a disclaimer for some people that are very in love with the piece. There are some women that are cross colors. So be okay with that because that's the way that it is. But I'm really excited because it allowed us to have so many different voices. And hearing that many different voices tell these stories was really important to me. What are the voices saying to a contemporary audience um, but maybe reminding, and this obviously depends on the age group, but maybe reminding older folks who are in the audience who are around during the 70s. Music is a huge part of the choreo poem. And so the music that is mentioned is like the Dell Stay. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of throwback references to the music that was really popular at that time. Um, in this one poem, the girls do the big bass line. And at that point in the 70s, it was a huge like dance sensation, which is funny because now it parallels to Chicago two-stepping. It's the same things, right? Same traditions that carry on and that just get renewed as time goes on. But being able to recall back on those experiences, like Lady Yellow specifically, is calling back on those experiences when she was young and lost her virginity for the first time. And hers is more of a happier, you know, poem than there are some that are not. <laughs> Uh, for sure, surrounding similarly the same subject matter. And so what I do love about Natasaki is she was very well-rounded in showing the experience um, and also about living in New York, too. I need to mention that. Like, there's a poem that talks about, you know, I grew up in Harlem. That's a beautiful poem. The actress was so great because she was like, do you want me to do this in, you know, a Harlem accent? I'm like, absolutely. All these women can be from wherever place. <laughs> um, I really do think, like, especially if we're discussing specific regions, it's important to yeah. lean into that. And also, the African diaspora is very expensive, right? So that also includes our Latin American countries, Haiti, Jamaica, you know, we're all dispersed. So there are poems in it from women that identify as black, but then have, um, there's one poem where she was, I actually can't say that word on <laughs> Um, but she was like, we would have been just regular blank, um, which is hints of Spanish. And I like that because it also includes that part of the diaspora as well. And so there's a lot of Spanglish in it as well. So it's 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 a beautiful. She left no stone unturned on who she was representing. And she really, I felt, represents New York in a very beautiful way. I was going to ask you how that plays to Arizona. And I think I've answered my own question just based on <laughs> listening to you, which is that Arizona, particularly Maricopa County in the Phoenix metro region, is a broad diaspora of folks from many different cultures, ethnicities, backgrounds, what have you. I mean, we're one of the fastest growing counties in the entire nation, if not the fastest growing county, right? And so are there things that maybe you have changed in the script that are sort of New York-centric, or did you even feel the need to to play towards a home audience a little more? Tell me about that process. That's a great question. Um, I didn't feel the need to do that. To be completely honest, the text lends very specifically to what it wants, right? Some poems are recalling memories good and bad. Some poems are talking about where they're from. Some are talking about their heritage. So there's one poem, even though all of it is set in like New York City, there's one poem that's specific about location, and then we, we pay honor to that. But no, it's, it's not hard because, again, I think all women can identify with these topics, uh, no matter where you live, whether that's in the U.S. or outside of it, it's most certainly... Right. I think one of the reasons why people attend theater in the first place is because there's that intimacy, you know. It's that 
live connection between the actresses or actors on stage and the audience themselves. You know, um, a character delivers a line and you hear a gasp from an audience member, you know, and you're wondering, (laughs) you're like checking your own reactions, right? Like, why didn't I get what that person got? Or somebody laughs at something that maybe is kind of serious and it's one of those nervous laughs. So I just, you know, I just wonder for some folks who don't have as much experience with poetry per se, do you think that this is more intimate as a choreo poem than if it was just a standard, say, drama, for instance, or a standard comedy, for instance? I do. I and why so? Do. It is a choreo poem, so the transitions aren't, because in standard theater, you would have transitions that link one thought to the next. Not saying that hers doesn't have a fluidity, it absolutely does, but there isn't that unifying transition. Like, for example, in the beginning of the play, it introduces all the women. And then they do like a cute little childlike transition, which goes into the first poem about graduation night. And that's the one about the young lady who loses her virginity. However, though, the following poems that kind of go after that, they definitely flow. But there's not like there's not like that transition. Like it literally is like this is this poem. This is this poem. And then it goes and continues through the end. Because you would think, right, as a progression of a piece, especially with musical theater or whatnot, if people want a happy ending or or not, there's always an arc, a character arc, and then there's a climax, and then we come down um, with the exposition and then the resolution. With this, the very last poem is probably the most devastating of all the poems (laughs) that are in the entire piece. And so although there are light moments throughout, uh, that poem for sure will probably leave you like what this is how this ends but what's beautiful she does do a wrap-up where she has the women um, and not to give much away but the lines are I was missing something and they talk about finding that something within themselves and that is what this piece is so powerful and about that even we can mention the most devastatingly low part of the entire piece within minutes of the ending of the show and still end on an uplifting note where we're singing about finding God in ourselves and being able to embrace and love our own selves fiercely, whatever we're going through, which is great. Other arcs in theater or in shows would then have a very different structure, whereas this one is, this is the truth. Here's our story. You take it. And then this is how we show you how we move we move through that. Was there something missing either in your own life or an experience um, that you had maybe put out of your mind that you found oh. by directing <laughs> this project? I did, sorry, it's a deep question. That is a but. very deep question. Um, it's funny because I, I did this piece back in 2008 and I played Lady Orange then. And there's this whole line where she talks about not, again, to give too much of the text away, but she talks about um, loving this man with everything that she has, and then she sees him, you know, off to the side, and the language is like, after you put my heart in the bottom of your shoe, you walk back to where she left, and it's one of those things where it's like, when you hear certain lines, (laughs) they hit you in your chest, and now that I'm directing it, see, before, as an actress, I was only focusing on my poem because that was my responsibility. Now I'm required to focus on all of the poems, and I'm finding myself 
in every single poem or closely connected to some of the ones that I haven't been personally through. And it is drumming up a whole lot of personal experiences, good and bad, in terms of love, especially. The poems are not primarily about love, but that is a very common theme throughout most of the poems. For folks who really mainly just have experience, let's say, reading literature, reading poetry, for instance, and who have not seen a lot of poetry readings or poetry performed. It's night and day often, and there are things that you come to a realization about as a result of seeing something in action and someone else's interpretation on an image, for instance, or what you were thinking and what you were relating to in a poem. So that's the thing that I I think audiences might really be attracted to seeing something like this. It's not every day that you get the opportunity to attend a live reading or a live event such as this. So my colleagues back in September interviewed Benjamin Benet, who's the latest winner of the National Latinx Playwriting Award. And one of the things that Benjamin talked about was increasing the diversity of offerings for theater companies across the nation and including here in Phoenix, for instance. You know, he's with the Arizona Theater Company that awarded that National Latinx Playwriting Award. Um, But one of the keys that that Benet mentioned was including more diversity, including LGBTQ, minority, and indigenous voices in theater lineups. And just by listening to you and, and understanding better now the subject matter of this, what can folks do to increase that type of diversity and also at the same time build more community support? Because, I mean, after all, that's the point of this, right, is to get the community engaged. Absolutely. So it's funny that you asked that. So I've been in the theater game here locally. Um, again, I've done, I did this show back in 2008, but professionally, I've been working again with Phoenix Theater was my first professional job, and that was back in 2011. I did hairspray with them. And so I have been working professionally since then. But I quit my actual nine to five job in 2013, and I've been doing it solely acting professionally after that. So anyway, I brought my background up to say (laughs) surviving as an actress in Arizona is very difficult. Surviving as an actress in Arizona as a black woman is even harder. And a curvy black woman is even harder than that. (laughs) And so... um, But you're proof positive that you can do it. I'm proof positive that you absolutely can do it. And I'm very proud of how far we've come as a community because... Back in 2009, my brother and I co-founded a group called The Solo Broadway. And by co-founding that group, we were like, we just literally want to show theaters that we're here. That's it. That was the only point. So I would go to theaters and say, you're dark on this time. Can we present a show in the space of cabaret of sorts uh, that would give um, not often produced black musicals because that's not being done because a lot of the theater community at that time didn't think that there was enough diversity to even do some of these you know, these shows. So our cabaret featured show like from Pearly and The Wiz and Carolina Change, some of these shows that were never done at the time. And we presented this cabaret and it was very successful. But that started letting the theaters know that we exist. But then I had a couple of meetings with some of the different directors around town. And they were like, you know, 
I was going to do ragtime, but we had to cancel it because we didn't have enough people show up. Or I was going to do Memphis, but we had to cancel it because there was enough people that show up. So there was this constant conversation of that. And so I had an artistic director just sit me down um, and was just like, what do I do? <laughs> How do I reach? And I was like, well, on both sides of the table. On your side of the table, you need to understand where the community is and how to reach them. I said, but as an advocate myself, I will make sure that I create a place as well. So thus was born the United Colors of Arizona Theater. So uh, in parallel to what you were just asking, we have been established for the last three years. We are a Facebook group that has now grown to almost 300 members, all um, people of color that are using it as a networking place. So a lot of audition notices and things are put there. If people ask me, Chanel, do you happen to know anybody that can fulfill these roles? I then um, send them if they're non-people of color. I then send them to our sister group called Friends of the United Colors of Arizona Theater. And they can post their audition notices and everything there. So number one, it's about educating. And it's about making enough opportunity for people to know these are the opportunities that are out here. So the United Colors of Arizona Theater has been um, beautifully supported by the Phoenix Theater Company. They allow us space to do workshops. Um, they have lended their own support. Their um, associate artistic director has himself set in on my on our audition prep. It is a grassroots venture that I fund myself. <laughs> so uh, people donating their time is really great and so appreciative. Um, we've held dance workshops and dance symposiums. Like, for example, Desert Foothills Theater is doing In the Heights, and they want to make sure that they had enough representation. And so um, I reached out to UCAT, is what I call it for short. Uh, and I was like, hey, do you guys need a dance like prep? Do you feel comfortable on the Latin dances? Do you feel comfortable on hip hop? And a lot of the response was no. So then we created a dance workshop that Phoenix Theater provided me space for. And so for three weeks, we ran dance workshops to prepare them for those auditions. So I think that's a long answer for me to say, I think that the work is being done and we're understanding the need even more so and diversifying and like, even from our callbacks, like when you go to a callback at some of the professional theaters now, just seeing who's in the green room has changed exponentially. I was so excited when I did an ELF callback for Phoenix Theater, and there were so many, so many people of color that were in that room. And, and I was like, okay, 10 years ago, I mean, not even 10 years ago, five years ago, it wasn't that diversified. So it's working, the formula's working, we just gotta keep pushing. And so this is my official call to action to all theaters in town. If you need help diversifying your season, there's a lot of people that are willing and ready to jump in and be a part of your theaters. <laughs> well, Chanel, thank you for bringing your vibrancy and your spirit to Word. I'm excited for folks to see how that comes out on the stage. Well, I'm excited. And also, I did want to mention something yeah. that I totally forgot to mention earlier. I think this piece is also timely because we are honoring Natasake uh, Shange, who passed away last year. Um, and so it is like literally like a year later, we're like, okay, we want to pay homage to uh, this beautiful poet. Chanel Bragg, thank you so much for coming on Word. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Find out more about For Colored Girls Who Have Considered Suicide When the Rainbow is Enough by visiting livepoetic.com. If you have a suggestion for a future episode of Word, or you just want to explore our archive, hit us up at word.kjzz.org. 
I'm Tom Maxidon, and thanks for listening. Word. Word? Word. Was the word. Thanks for listening to Word from the KJZZ Studios in Tempe, Arizona. You can find all episodes online at word.kjzz.org. 